0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hi, this is David Rutledge. You're in the Philosopher's Zone and welcome to a conversation about philosophy and travel. The COVID pandemic is, of course, by no means over, but many of us are starting to get back out there into the world and jumping on planes and beginning to travel again. And travel is one of those things that many of us think about in a purely recreational sense. We travel for a holiday. We travel to get some warm weather. We travel to somewhere because we like the food. And of course, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with any of that. But have you ever thought about travel as a means of acquiring knowledge, travel as a philosophical activity? Well, my guest certainly has. In fact, she's written a book about it. Emily Thomas is an associate professor of philosophy at Durham University in the UK, and she's the author of The Meaning of Travel. She's also been writing recently about women travellers in the 19th century and why a good number of these intrepid and independent women were also resolutely anti-feminist. It's a very interesting story. It all has to do with the posthumous reputation of Mary Wollstonecraft. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's a story we're going to get onto a little later in the program. Let's meet our guest first of all, Emily Thomas. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Now, you're a philosopher of time, and I think that for a lot of people, when they consider the philosophy of time, they they think about something highly technical, something rather abstract. But then you're also a philosopher of travel, which on the face of it seems to cover very different terrain to the philosophy of time. So I'm assuming there's a connection there for you between those two fields of interest. How would you describe that connection?
0: The simplest answer is that I am obsessed with time and I am obsessed with travel. It, um, I think that the casual observer is right. Time tends to be very abstract in philosophy, whereas travel is about really concrete things like maps and mountains and the nature of wilderness. That said, I think there is a deeper connection that for philosophy of travel, there is an awful lot of trying to gain knowledge about the world and also trying to gain knowledge about the facts that we do not know that we don't know. And I think that topics like time or space or causality are some of the biggest unknowns that there are. And so in that regard, philosophy and travel are both about digging out the big unknowns in the universe.
1: You draw some really interesting parallels between travel and philosophy as as spheres of human activity. In what ways is a philosopher also a traveller and maybe vice versa?
0: giving you examples of philosophers who have traveled is an easy way to get that idea. So Michel de Montaigne uh, traveled through Europe and was really fascinated by uh, reports of travelers that went further. South America, for example, Descartes the soldier uh, traveled through Eastern Europe fighting in various wars. And these philosophers are approaching travel thoughtfully so they're trying to ask themselves what is it that travel can teach me that will help advance my philosophy and in almost all these cases what they are finding is travel helps them undermine assumptions that are so deep-seated they didn't even know that they had them. So it's ways of thinking that are so ingrained that we think, oh, obviously everybody must think this way. And travel shows us that that's just not the case.
1: The thing I love about your book is that you draw a whole lot of really fascinating and quite unexpected connections between what philosophers do and what travellers do. And you make one of those connections by way of a story about how a change in philosophy resulted in a profound change in the way that people perceived landscape. Can you tell me about that?
0: I can. So back in the 17th century, mountains were described as warts or ugly protuberances upon the earth. They were thought to be really negative, dark, angry things, things that were to be avoided. Later in the 17th century, we have a development in the philosophy of space, where Cambridge philosophers, Henry Moore, Isaac Barrow, Isaac Newton, begin to think that space is literally God's presence in the world. So space becomes divine. And this idea it just runs through 17th century thought and suddenly we get artists and novelists and poets picking up on it and they begin to draw a connection not just between space and god but between places in the world that are big spaces so mountains, oceanscapes, deserts and suddenly mountains for example go from being these ugly warts to being cathedrals to the divine places that we should absolutely visit and this spurs a craze for mountain tourism so there's this extremely unusual connection between a what you might think to be a really obscure philosophy of space and the fact that all these people now want to go and climb mountains. So historically, the natural world was seen as something in the West that humans should dominate. You know, we should strip the the land and the plants and the animals for our own use, that that's why God put them there. And when we begin to have this reversal in the way of thinking about the natural world, that maybe these spaces are literally parts of God, um, that paves the way for later movements like um, the American transcendentalists, so Henry Thoreau, uh, Emerson, who are suddenly beginning to think of nature as being divine in itself um, and something that should be protected and looked after and conserved, uh, which is a really different way of, you know, rather than just reaping our benefits from it. And these philosophies, again, had real world impact. So, for example, the environmentalist John Muir um, loved Henry Thoreau and and he led eventually to the American national parks being created.
1: We do meet from time to time what you might call superficial travellers, people who have that sort of mental checklist and they just say, yeah, I've I've done China, I've done Norway, I've done Morocco. (laughs) we've We've all met that guy on our travels. When I think about what kind of philosopher that might represent, I think, perhaps unfairly, of of the popularizer, right? The writer of Descartes for Dummies, that sort of thing, how stoicism can lead to happiness. I had a popular philosophy writer on the program a little while ago and I got an email from a very dismissive philosophy professor who wanted to know why I was bothering to speak with what he called a journeyman philosopher, (laughs) which is a very interesting word to use for the purposes of our conversation. What are your thoughts on popular philosophy? Is it a kind of intellectual tourism or is it something more valuable than that?
0: Popular philosophy can merely be intellectual tourism. It can just be, here's a big complicated idea and I'm going to convey it in a little simple way for you. But popular philosophy can also be much, much more than that. Um, And, you know, Popular books about travel or philosophy, they can be elevated to the form of art. Like great writing about big ideas is something that you very rarely see in scholarship. And it's possible to do things in popular philosophy that I don't think you can do in scholarship. For example, I was recently reading David Fiddler's Breakfast with Seneca. And he is explaining Seneca's philosophy you know, in sort of simple, bite-sized ways. But he's also giving us a big overview, drawing big connections between themes within Seneca's thoughts, but also between things that are going on in our lives now, looking at its relevance for the COVID-19 pandemic, looking at its relevance for how we understand aging and death in the 21st century. And I think in so doing, he's just approaching topics that you just can't do in scholarship. If I'm writing a proper history of philosophy book about Seneca, it would be considered really odd um, to include musings on the pandemic. So I think it allows you to, I think it just allows you to address new things.
1: Who else do you like? Who, who Who do you recommend as popular philosophers?
0: I really like Julian Vigini as well. His writing style, I think, can be really engaging. But actually, I don't like him for his writing. I like him for the way that he dives headfirst into ideas and tries to do something new with them so he has this book how the world thinks where he tries to draw a contrast between African and Indian and Chinese philosophies and I think that was a new thing I don't think that has been done before he describes going to conferences in each of the traditions and he tries to articulate key ideas in them and there's a real inventiveness there that you cannot do in real scholarship I think
1: That's an interesting one because I I actually had Julian Bugini on the program talking about that book when it came out. And it's a travel book as much as anything else, isn't it? It's like an intellectual travel book. And I guess the the difficult thing about those kinds of books is that the writer is always bringing a Western perspective, right? Mm. There's always that sort of, here are people who are thinking about things in a different way, whereas for those particular people, those particular traditions, there's nothing different about them at all. Do you think that There are ethical dangers in writing books like that.
0: Yes, there are. (laughs) I think the pitfalls are many and varied. However, we are, all of us, always writing from a certain perspective that's just a fact about human experience. Um, and if we had a Chinese popular philosopher attempting the same project, you know, entering into African philosophies and European philosophies, but they would also be writing from their unique perspective on the world. Because there is no other way to write, that there is no view from nowhere. And anyone who pretends to be offering one is just making it up, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah. yeah, well, the view from nowhere is like the original sin of philosophy, isn't it? Or, or at least the assumption that there is a view from nowhere and that i the wise philosopher have managed to adopt that perspective but it's not hard to see how travel can make us better philosophers in that it really brings home the illusory nature of the view from nowhere but do you also think that philosophy can make us better travelers
0: i think philosophy can make us better everything <laughs> i think that philosophy at its best gives us tools for thinking about how the world is. Um, I think what philosophy is really, really good at is getting us to question our deepest held assumptions, trying to show us other perspectives, other viewpoints on the same issues, um, and for thinking clearly about them. And so when we begin thinking about philosophical issues around travel, questions like, what is the nature of a map? Or is it ethical to visit places that are seen to be doomed by climate change? Um, I really think that philosophy can offer fresh perspectives on these things. And that's a really good thing. If we want to travel thoughtfully and really engage with the world, then why not take in as many perspectives as we can?
1: what is the nature of a map? That's a very interesting (laughs) thing to throw out there because it it seems as though the answer should be quite self-evident. But the way that you write about it in your book, there is a lot more to a map than the casual traveller might realise.
0: I thought it was self-evident before I began digging into it. I thought that a map is obviously a representation of the world that helps us get from A to B. And when I began digging into maps, I found that of course that's not the case because map makers, like all other writers, are writing from certain perspectives and very often they are loading their maps with value judgments about what's important and what's not important in the world. They're often trying to persuade you of political realities. Um, So what's represented on a map, whether they choose to include the the castle of a king or or the parliament of a democracy, um, where they place borders, all these things go to shape your understanding of the region that you are looking at. Um, And so, in fact, maps are are real objects of power. And that's what many of the philosophers who have worked on maps say, and I am persuaded. I think that they are completely right. Um, To give you a couple of really simple examples, Whatever is placed in the centre of a map is seen to be the most important thing, you know, whether that's Jerusalem or Europe <laughs> in the centre of a world map. Um, and if you go onto Google Images and you, um, you, know, you Google Australia world maps or Chinese world maps and you will see those respective regions placed in the centre of the world map, that tells you something about how the map makers are thinking about what they're creating.
1: What do you think about translation apps where you can just speak or type English into your phone and then it just spits out the phrase in French or Arabic or or whatever you need? Because I'm in two minds about those. I've I've never actually used one. They seem like wonderfully convenient technology, but I feel like if we're talking about travel as a philosophical activity – A really valuable part of that activity lies in being forced out of your comfort zone and into new languages, new vocabularies in in travel as in philosophy. What are your thoughts on that?
0: I think that the ultimate value of travel lies in exactly that, in experiencing the unfamiliar, in experiencing otherness. And anything that decreases that experience, I think devalues your experience of travel to some extent. Perhaps translation apps, we can think about them as akin to using something like Google Maps on your phone. On the one hand, it makes navigating that world easier um, and it allows you to engage with places and with people in a way that wouldn't be possible otherwise. Yet it's doing so in a way that's super familiar to you. It's the same interface that you use at home. It's the same language that you use at home. And so I think that takes away from the reality of how alien the place that you're in can be. So, honestly, if a good translation app became available, I would be using it. I could see how helpful it would be um, to talk to people whose languages I don't know, and ask for information, even have proper conversations in a way that certainly right now, I think translation apps aren't yet ready to facilitate. But part of me thinks that's a shame that really I should be more motivated to learn the languages themselves, that that would be a much richer way of engaging with whatever society I'm in.
1: There's a change taking place in the ethics of travel, and there's a lot we could talk about there and issues that have to do with things like Airbnb and you know how that's driving a rental affordability crisis in many cities around the world. But the big one, of course, is climate change and this growing awareness of the fact that commercial aviation is a, a huge uh, contributor to global warming. And I wonder if you feel that introduces a tension into that relationship between philosophy and travel, where on, on one hand philosophy says, learn everything, experience everything, go anywhere, go everywhere you can. But on the other hand, that same impetus is turning out to be environmentally disastrous. So I don't know, maybe we shouldn't be traveling as much as we're doing. And if, if not, what might that mean for the acquisition of knowledge?
0: One thing I want to say there is that it is travel by plane that there is a particular problem. So I don't think we need to talk about eliminating travel altogether. You know, if you're setting off by foot or by bicycle or even by bus or train, that's an utterly different prospect to taking lots and lots of flights to travel the world. Philosophy is certainly all about acquiring as much knowledge as we can, on behalf of the human race. You know, philosophy, I think, it wants us to travel into outer space and see what's there and go to the bottom of the sea. But that's not something that every human being needs to do. Um, That's something that that a few human beings can do and then come back and share the fruits of their research. Um, I think the worries that you're really talking about concern individual travellers who are learning new things for themselves. so, So there's plenty of people who know what Delhi is like um, but I'm not one of them (laughs) so I would like to go along and learn for myself but then I don't think that philosophy is telling me I should go everywhere and learn everything I think these philosophers who've thought really hard about the benefits of travel really just say that you need to break out of your familiar environment. And, and that could just involve going to one or two unfamiliar places. Um, and they're certainly not fussed about whether I go there by train or by aeroplane. Um, what they're bothered about is just, it's just being in a place where there is so much newness that it shakes me out of the preconceived ideas I have about the world. So I actually don't find a tension there. I can understand why you think there might be one, but I don't see it.
1: You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and Emily Thomas from Durham University in the UK, who's the author of The Meaning of Travel. You've written a lot about the position of women within the historically very male domain of exploration and travel. Uh, we don't hear a lot about women travellers in the 19th century, but there were quite a few of them, as, as you've written, and they, they were out there in West Africa and the Middle East and Asia and the Americas. How were they perceived at the time?
0: They were perceived... To be extremely masculine. There are some wonderful descriptions. Uh, so uh, Isabella Byrd was thought to have a man's heart. Yeah, um, Gertrude Bell had masculine vigor. Yeah, Mary Kingsley had manly strength. And um, these were the ways that newspapers and magazines uh, were describing their exploits back home. Yeah, um, and the implicit idea here is that because traveling is something that men do, when women do it, they take on these male qualities, that they're fulfilling a a man's role.
1: What's interesting about these women explorers is that a lot of them were vehemently anti-feminist and many of them steered clear of traditionally masculine topics like politics and economics. Mm. Uh, Many of them were outspoken against the women's suffrage movement. And I'm just noting that now as something we'll come back to in a minute. But what's also interesting is that like women travellers, women philosophers were also perceived as having notionally masculine attributes. And one such philosopher was Mary Wollstonecraft, who, as it happens, was also a travel writer. Tell me about Mary Wollstonecraft's work in philosophy, first of all. She, She wrote an early feminist classic, didn't she?
0: She did. So Mary Wollstonecraft, 18th century English philosopher, she was a rare woman who tried to make her way in the world back then. And in 1792, she published The Vindication of the Rights of Women, which was a groundbreaking book arguing that women were just as rational as men. They were simply not educated to the same standard, Um, that women should be educated to the same standard, so that they could then have careers in the same way that men do, so that they could take roles in government. um, And she thought that if uh, only countries did this, um, the world would be a better place, there would be more equality, and that the world would benefit from it.
1: And how was the book received at the time? Was what she was advancing there particularly contentious?
0: It was extremely contentious. So back then, there was a deeply ingrained link between being male and being rational. Uh, So the idea is that to be a woman was to be inherently less rational. Um, And that's why they figured there were no great women thinkers or philosophers or scientists, because women just fundamentally weren't kitted out for it. So Wollstonecraft's argument that they just weren't educated well enough, um, it really was groundbreaking. Nonetheless, the book itself was actually very well received in the press. Um, There were some positive tongue-in-cheek jokes, such as... And um, Wollstonecraft defends the rationality of her sex very rationally.
1: She also wrote a travel book at that time, which was actually much more popular than her philosophical work. What was that one?
0: The travel book is titled "Letters Through Sweden, Norway, and Denmark," and in this book, she spends a few months traveling around Scandinavia, and it's a real hit. She introduces parts of these countries that readers back in that part of Europe had never encountered before. Uh, so things like feather-filled duvets, smoked fish, pine forests—you uh, can imagine sort of fjords and, and icy, snowy landscapes—and um, people absolutely loved it. Uh, so. Coleridge, for example, used elements of this to craft some of his poems. Um, Like, the book was extremely well-reviewed and it sold really well. It was something of a bestseller in its day.
1: Right. So Mary Wollstonecraft, established philosopher and traveller, a popular, celebrated writer. She died in 1797, right on the cusp of the 19th century. And after her death, her public reputation took something of a dive. What happened and, and why? So
0: things went wrong. So her husband, William Godwin, published a book of memoirs about her. And in the memoirs, he revealed that Wollstonecraft was not married to the father of her first child um, and that she had attempted suicide at one point. And all of these things uh, shocked uh, his 18th century readers. This was just, you know, a, a terrible thing for a woman to have done. And suddenly all these incredibly positive reviews of Austencraft turned really negative. And what's interesting is how they turn negative, because they begin to imply that her life's tale is a cautionary warning of a woman who became too much like a man. So they begin to pin the blame for these errors of judgment on the fact that she was too masculine, um, that she had a man's way of thinking about things, uh, that she tried to imitate the sturdy sex. And, And these Ideas, they're not just in the 18th and 19th centuries. It, as recently as the 1940s, she's described as having penis envy. Uh, in what is a brilliant line, one writer says that the shadow of the phallus hangs over her darkly. so so we have this shift from this extremely well-respected woman um, to someone who was really torn apart in the press and it seems to be because she just entered into one too many masculine spheres she wasn't just doing philosophy a man's game she was also doing travel writing another man's game um, and she was just slayed for it Um, and it really felt like that is the cause of her transgression
1: Right, so she, she's held up as a moral lesson to other women mm. who might be tempted to forsake those traditional female roles. Y- you have a really interesting theory that what happened to Mary Wollstonecraft can explain why so many women travellers and explorers in the 19th century were so outspoken against feminist causes. Tell me about that.
0: My theory is that these Victorian women travellers, people like Mary Kingsley and Isabella Bird, They were very conscious that they could do one masculine thing like travel, but they couldn't do any more than that. And and so that's why they are so desperate to avoid politics, philosophy, feminism. They just push it all aside. They even go to lengths such as, so Wollstonecraft Tells us that we shouldn't talk about fashion, um, that that's a kind of trap for women to fall into. Whereas all of these Victorian women travellers are desperate to talk about fashion. They go to great lengths to emphasise that they are striding through the African rainforests wearing skirts, not trousers. And they ask for the press to report on what they're wearing, to talk about how feminine they are despite their masculine activities. Um, And it seems to me that they are all very conscious of the shadow of. Wollstonecraft, it hanging in the background, um, and that's why they don't enter into any of these things. Again, another contrast. So Wollstonecraft, in her travel writing, uses her travels to support her views on feminism. So she's arguing: look at the state of some of these women in these countries. If only they were properly educated, in these particular issues it wouldn't be around. And these Victorian uh, writers, if they touch on politics at all, they will ascribe opinions to male companions that they have with them or or men that they meet along the way. It's an utterly different attitude. It's an utterly different attitude to how to report on these things. And what's so sad about this is that actually Wollstonecraft opened the gate for these women. Um, So Wollstonecraft was a well-known reviewer of travel writing before she wrote her own book. And she very consciously writes her own book in a new style. um, It's all about I. She puts herself at the centre of the story, sort of allowing the reader to view the world through her eyes. Um, And that's something that was quite different to the travel writing that was around at the time, which tended to be sort of more scientific in nature, uh, describing things in the third person uh, much more objectively. It was much less about giving opinions and feelings and much more about... Yeah, um, sort of pseudo-scientific descriptions of what was around. Yeah, um, these Victorian travel writers, they are very much writing in the style of Boston craft. Yeah, um, So they really owe her a lot, despite the fact that I think they were desperately trying to avoid what happened to her.
1: Emily Thomas. She's an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Durham University in the UK. Her book is The Meaning of Travel, and you can find a lot more of Emily's research and writing on her excellent website. We'll put a link to that on our website. We are the Philosopher's Zone, and you can listen to us anytime via the ABC Listen app. I'm David Rutledge. Thank you so much for your company, and I hope you can join me next time. Safe travels. Bye for now.